Om Malik is one of those people who, every time you see him, you wonder, why don't I spend more time with this guy? He has a warmth and a curiosity that find their way into absolutely everything he does. Uh, you might know him from the blog he founded, GigaOM, uh, or maybe from his current position as a partner at True Ventures, a venture capital firm in San Francisco. But Ohm is also a passionate watch collector and photographer, and he's extremely thoughtful about everything he does. Our founder and CEO, Ben Clymer, and I had a chance to sit down with our friend Ohm a few weeks ago in San Francisco, and the conversation went a lot of different directions, all of them good. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinkee Radio. This week's episode is brought to you by Tudor. Stay tuned later in the show for a look at the Heritage Black Bay Chrono, a new take on one of Tudor's most iconic watches. You can also learn more at TudorWatch.com. Thanks so much for joining us, Ohm. It's really good to have you uh, have you here this week, or I guess for us to be here with you in San Francisco. That's right. <laughs> Uh, we've known each other kind of a while, and I met you through Ben, actually. But when was the first time you guys met? It's been a while. It's been maybe a little too long. Yeah, it's too long. It was. Uh, it was. Ben was still a boy with the blog. <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that's very true. And then we. Uh, I think we started communicating. I was a, a fan of, of Giga Ohm, obviously. Uh, and I think we started communicating on Twitter first, back when Twitter was a thing. Uh, <laughs> that tells you how long ago it was. And then we were both in Paris one December. I think you were there for Le Web, yeah. I believe, yeah. which is the greatest name for a conference. Le Web. Le Web. Uh, and I was there for some such nonsense in the watch world. I don't know why yeah. or what it was. Uh, but I had a free evening, and we were communicating, and so we, we hung out. From what I understand, you were there to meet some vintage watch um, a, a dealer so that you could get some fancy watch. That's why you were there for <laughs> I mean, there's, a, there's at least a 50% that's chance. Usually that's usually why no, Ben that is that was Paris. pretty much the reason you were there. You told me. No, but just to put a finer point on our first time we communicated was on Twitter. But the guy who connected us was Michael Williams from uh, Paul and Williams. Is that true? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know if that's he made, true. He made the email introductions. Interesting. Huh. And and uh, it was from there, like he made the introductions, and you know, rest is history. And now here we are, hanging out, making a podcast. And together. now you you made an introduction back to him with me. I did, right? <laughs> I did do that. Correct? Wait a second. So you fell out of touch with Michael, and then no, had to no. What you? had happened was it was on Twitter, and oh. and Michael had said you should follow Ben. Oh, that was oh, the I introduction. See. I see. Okay. And so I followed Ben. Okay. And, and now then, you're stuck with me. No, you can say stuck, I'd say privileged. Oh, what a guy. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, and so we, we were both in Paris that December. I remember it fondly. And uh, we walked around. We went to the, the Hermes flagship, as one does, and then John Lobb right next door. Uh, and then we went to, I think, the whip. I think of that as a fake John Lobb. Why? The real one is still in London. Well, yeah, for sure. Sure. But, I mean, you know. It's right next door. How yeah, can you not go? Yeah, yeah it's true. Um, and then we went into a Wempy, I think. Or maybe an AP boutique. We went to an AP boutique. We went through a lot of places. We did. We went on a, what people go for a photo walk, we went on a watch walk. Yeah, which, yeah. which again is kind of par for the course. Yes. <laughs> I like, I learned more on that walk than I ever did on anything. So, <laughs> I, I remember that, that, that trip well. I mean, that was several years ago, more yeah. than five years ago at this point. And I just remember thinking like this, 
this was one of those, it was one of the first kind of like cool moments where I got to meet somebody from a totally different world. Yeah. You know, not the watch world, not the luxury world, but from tech and, and journalism for that matter. I think I was actually, may have been in journalism school at the yeah. time. Um, and it was just kind of a neat experience. It was 2012, actually, if I remember correctly. Wow. And uh, that, that web I met, spent time with Ben from Corky mm-hmm. and and Jamie Simonoff from Ring. And so there's a lot of, and, you know, a lot the worlds came together yep. at that event. That's and, you wild. know, you, and it's funnily how, you know, Jamie and you ended up in the true family. Yeah. 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 And I think uh, that, that's maybe worth explaining to, to the listeners is yeah. that. So, so Ohm is now a partner at True Ventures, which is a great uh, venture capital firm here in, in, in San Francisco. And they are one of our largest investors and probably would say biggest supporter. Yeah. Uh, emotionally, financially, you know, every, basically every, every which way they can. Yeah. But me, me and uh, Ben are just friends. Long before True got involved. That's for yeah. sure. I think Ben was the guy I just talked to about watches. Yeah. 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 He's, I think he's the rest kind of, the of a good guy that talks to about watches. Way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah it, it, it is funny to think how it all worked out. Now that we, I mean, we we don't really work together personally, but we our companies work together, and it's just kind of a lovely thing how it all worked. Yeah. Out. I'm just a reader, a fan, Likewise. and an occasional critic. That's good, though. We need some of that from time to time. Stephen definitely needs that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. What would what would be your biggest criticism right now? If you had to give us some some you advice, know, I think the there is a certain um, level of, you know, not Houdinki, but generally speaking, okay. about the watch world is that, you know, people speak down on people who don't know about watches. Similarly, how photographers speak down on people who don't know photography or designers talk down to people who don't know design. I think if there was one criticism of the watch world, it would be just like, so what? I like the damn dial. That's my starting point of a watch. Why should you talk down? You know, I don't know. Some people don't care about what ETA it is. Some people like, you know, you know, what's his name? Bill Max, his watches. So what's wrong with that? And I think... Talking down to people is, I kind of makes it, it makes it feel like, oh, I'm I'm not welcome here, so why am I wasting my money on this? And I think I felt that during design time as well, and even technology people were like that. It's like, you know, so I think just it's just the nature of experts, right? They just kind of talk down. And, yeah. And the, I mean, that's not really criticism. That's just an observation. You know, I what we could see more of is like what I'm seeing more of lately in uh, Hodinki and I got nothing to do with it is the more affordable watch coverage. I think that mm-hmm. just is uh, you know in, in in expensive jewelry is great if you live in, in the Middle East but some of us live in the real world and don't have that kind of money mm-hmm. you know so I, I, I like the, the idea of having affordable luxury and you know, you know, approachable luxury items, so people can actually get into the idea of analog time. Yeah, I yeah. mean, your personal collecting has kind of gone in that direction too, right? I mean, going from you know being more interested in the APs and paddocks of the world to being more interested now in things like Grand Seiko and Nomos, right? I I would say I was very big on Nomos for a very long time, but I'm kind of off the brand because there's way many more people wearing it, so. <laughs> 
<laughs> a little snobby, but why not? It's all right. And uh, but again, you know, Ben introduced me to Nomos, and that was the time we went to Vampy to buy the watch. That's exactly right. right. I'm remembering that now. And uh, I still have the watch. You know, yeah. it's like which uh, which one is it? Zurich. Okay. I still have it, keeping it mostly for you know sentimental reasons, not okay. for any other. Sure. And um, I think yeah, I like I like Grand Seiko mostly because you know it it's like a symbol of the Japanese craftsmanship, the care they take and put in their product is immense. And you know, in a certain part of the watch collector community, they are very well loved and recognized, but majority of the world still looks at Switzerland for innovation. Similar, you know, it's like the same thing I have. It's like some of the best shoes are being made in Japan. Some of the best suits are being made in Japan. So why do we have to be more conventional and go to Europe to find what is aesthetically and, you know, emotionally appealing to us? I, I find Japanese products really high quality and well-made, and Grand Seiko is fantastic. I, I think Seiko's just the presage is just one of the most underrated watch. I, you guys have a couple of those in in uh, in the store, and you yep. gave me one for Christmas. And I did. Thank you for that. And uh, <laughs> You're welcome. And you know, so I, I find those watches are more approachable, and like they feel more fun, and like, and also it doesn't feel like you're wearing a Porsche on your hand. Somebody might just cut it off. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, and also, who are you trying to impress with it? Like, you know, I think watches are such an emotional, personal thing, and it they need to f say something to you more than to anyone else. I think brands mean nothing. It just is the emotion of a watch and the craftsmanship. And, you know, that, and that's not, you know, in a, in a label. And I think, uh, you know, I, I, I prefer smaller brands anyway, as you've known very yeah. well. Like, I don't like to support the big, you know, media ad-supported conglomerate, you know, consumer system. I prefer small craftsmen. Like, I loved... Um, the other one watch you recommended, uh, the the Swiss guy. Oh, uh, Oxen Junior. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you know, it's different. You Extremely. know, it's not yeah. not everybody's taste, but it's a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. And like you just kind of say, wow, how much imagination has gone into making something which has been around forever into so magical? I think that's what I like. Is the small small guys do that mm -hmm. a lot. Yeah, and and Knoxon Junior is obviously a fascinating kind of case study because first of all, there's no branding on the dial ever. Yeah. Uh, at most, it'll be on the case back, occasionally on the back of the strap. Yeah. Uh, you know, really kind of anti-luxury. They don't use any of the, the the traditional Swiss watch suppliers, even though they are Swiss based. Uh, it's a lot of F1 and a lot of um, aerospace companies. Right. Uh, and then of course they do things in a totally different way, mechanically speaking. So they do perpetual calendars and annual calendars using an ETA twenty eight ninety two. With I think at, at most five to nine additional yeah, components. Yeah, I think the annual calendar is five additional components, yeah. which is insane. Yeah, and it, it's just it's it's a fascinating brand. I remember when when we celebrated our fifth anniversary, which is yeah. crazy to think that was five, five years ago. Five years ago, uh, we we commissioned two uh, special uh, Oxen Junior watches that said you know fifth anniversary Hodinkee. Uh, I kept one. And then the other one we gave away uh, to, to somebody. And we made it in sterling silver, so the yep. case would patina. Uh, the moon, it was moon phase, it was also in sterling silver. They, they, they really make something special that, that surely 99.999% of humanity will not recognize as, yeah. at all. Right. 
The only thing I didn't like about that watch was the strap. <laughs> oh, those uh, sturgeon yeah. straps. Yeah, like, I'm not a fan yeah. either. They're they're tough. They are they are tough, but it it goes very much with who they are. Yeah, you know. Yeah. No, so, but I I did I did like the brand a lot. Thank you for introducing me. I applied for that contest. Didn't really make it. But <laughs> I was hoping. Then I had to pay for it next time. You know, I mean, you mentioned also this idea of. One of the things about Grand Seiko that's appealing is that it's not Swiss and that it's not European and that kind of like traditional Western luxury system. Um, I mean, Ben, I know I've seen you in Switzerland wearing a very nice Grand Seiko. Uh, it definitely gets some looks, right? Yeah, it, it, it does. Uh, I, I am not, I mean, I'm wearing a Patek Philippe right now, so it's like kind of the opposite of what you're talking about, and it's gold, <laughs> on a gold bracelet. So it's literally the, it's, the antithesis. It's like the most old world luxury. It is, in fact. Um, but, you know, I, I, I have a little a little bit of those tendencies as well. Uh, so when I was in uh, Geneva for the SIHH, and, and earlier I was wearing a, a Grand Seiko, uh, and it, it does get some looks, and I think like people who really know watches, there, there's a gentleman in, in Geneva that I'm friends with named Patrick Kramers, who's actually the, the he's on the, the product team for Patek Philippe and he also runs their their Geneva salon but he's a real watch guy you know he, he wears Kari Vulti line and he actually has right. another store that, that sells Kari uh, and you know I walked into the, the Patek salon and most people there are like you know what, what the fuck is this you know like this is a Seiko they're thinking it's like a $50 right. watch and Patrick who knows everything and mind you sells million dollar Pateks all day long uh, took and said wow you know and he, he looped it and he just said the quality on this is out of control uh, and really, the, the quality on, on that watch, if you look at it under a loop next to anything from Patek in a similar price point, it, it's embarrassing for Patek. It's embarrassing for, for most Swiss brands, yeah. you know? Um, it's really, it, it's a fun thing. But the, the Swiss are, and I've seen it firsthand, they are deathly afraid of, of anything that's not their own, uh, even going as far to, to be afraid of Langa when, when, they were, when they were new, and they still are, you know, and, and they should be, for the record. They're amazing. Um, you know, but th there have been times where I remember... Um, Early on, I was having lunch with somebody who was then uh, a high-ranking official at an LVMH brand, uh, and his brand had lost the Grand Prix when I was a jury member to a Grand Seiko. And it was a Grand Seiko Spring Drive. It was a chronograph. It was a watch that went to space. It's, oh, it's a yeah. Fast, it's a crazy watch. Uh, and he was just irate. He couldn't believe that, that they would lose to, to who he described as citizen. And I said, citizen is a totally different thing. That than, is a very different thing. <laughs> it really is. But I mean, that, that's how it's viewed by, by some, not all, uh, Swiss executives. If, if, it's not, if it's not their own, if it's not somebody that, if it's not Rolex, Omega, Patek, whatever, uh, they just kind of dismiss it. And so he was confusing a Grand Seiko spring drive, which went into space and had several technical accolades behind it, with a, a, a court citizen. And I was just like, you have no idea what you're saying right, right. now. Uh, but, you know, you just, it just kind of is what it is. I think sometimes I wonder when industries get too established, they become very uh, fossilized in their thinking. I think why would a watch company like Daniel Wellington exist, right? Yeah, Kendall. I mean, Kendall right. Jenner. That's yeah, right. mostly. Right, but like that, they missed the whole movement. The you know, the Swiss watch industry missed it. Like I don't think they have. Swiss movements, they have some no. Chinese no, movements. No, absolutely, yeah. Daniel Wellington makes everything in China. They yeah. actually they actually own their factory. It's yeah. crazy. Yeah. I did a big story on them at Bloomberg a couple of years ago, and it's the whole thing is built on Instagram marketing and owning their manufacturing. Right. And I think the why did that happen? Why didn't Swatch wake up to that opportunity? And I think that's when you look too much inwards. I think you stop thinking about the opportunities. Any company... You know, you, you've seen it in tech world time and time again. You know, like 
for the longest time you had Microsoft looking inwards and, you know, and like, and it never really looked at the opportunities outside of right. how it thought about its its world and its business. And I think that's that's important for people to be, you know, thinking about. I think the Clayton's, uh, Clayton Christensen's innovator's dilemma works in the watch world as well. I think, yeah. I mean, they did not see the the Apple Watch coming, you know, people joke about it, that it's a failure and what? It's a $3 billion a year failure. I don't know how yeah. many, you know, tech startups are out there which can call themselves $3 billion tech failures. Yeah, I mean, we, yeah. we just got finished closing our second issue of the magazine where where, where I write about the Apple Watch extensively. And it, it's amazing. It the, to, to call that product a failure, it, it's a failure only relative to Apple's other successes, which, you know, where every other product becomes actually ubiquitous and it's just a part of, of society. The Apple Watch is not that, but relative to any other product on this planet, it, it's a wild success. I think the watch, you know, is it's probably the biggest disservice Apple did by calling it calling the Apple Watch, watch yeah. right? And I also think, you know, we've, uh, we don't really look at watches as, and, you know, from a context of the society we live in, right? Mm -hmm. So the watch, the wristwatch, and, you know, came for military and army reasons, not for aesthetic reasons, not, and then it became more popular because we had an industrialized society, so we needed the nine to five time and certain kind of, you know, needs were there from people, the clocks and everything needed. And that's why we had the big upsurge in, in the adoption of watches, right? Like as a technology. And now we live in a world which is like, we, we, we live in a world of subfractional, you know, uh, section, subfraction seconds of attention. So the watch doesn't make any sense in that time. It's all about information streams. It's about uh, notifications. It's about you know interactions with the outside world. It's about being connected. It's less about being the time. I think just like the iPhone is less about the phone, it's more about everything else. And I think watches, everything else. I think even Apple doesn't really understand that, that by focusing so much on time and like they haven't really invested enough in the ecosystem to encourage great applications which actually benefit the platform and think about time not in minutes, seconds, and hours, but more as time as a unit of attention. I think mm -hmm. that is the biggest challenge of the Apple Watch and all the entire smartwatch you know, industry is that they're, they're trying to make a watch Man, there is so many people making great watches. Why the hell would I wear an ugly Android watch? And I'm sorry, no matter how great Johnny Ive might be, Apple Watch will never look as beautiful as my Grand Seiko or as my Patek. Sure. It won't. Yeah. But it will do. It can do things which are just so much more amazing than any of these things can do. And I think there is there is a very separation which needs to happen. We need to think about. The unit, uh, you know, the smartwatch is not as watches, but more as like a, a, a screen for, you know, connecting us to the world which we live in. Yeah, that, that, that's actually really interesting. The, the idea that, that Apple kind of trivialized the product by calling it a watch, I, I never really thought of, but I think you're, you're absolutely right. So, I mean, it's, by calling it a watch, which none of us need and which I admit freely all the time. Completely. Uh, they, they've really kind of taken the rug out from, from under it in terms of how people view it. In, in their mind, because we all know nobody needs a watch. I, I wonder 
what it could have been called that would have given it more substance or some sort of kind of more relevance? You know, as we were investors in Fitbit, so when you talk about Fitbit, that was actually a product which spoke to the function it was supposed to do. And, I, you know, I use Apple Watch to track my blood pressure, and, you know, I'm super curious about what they do with their with the medical research they're going mm-hmm. to do. Those things are just not possible with, you know, regular phones and regular devices. And I think that's where... For me, that's the opportunity. It's just mm-hmm. that wearable aspect of, of this computer is the opportunity. And I think it would be an interesting one to see how it evolves. But again, like, you know, I'm not going to dismiss that as a platform. People dismissed iPhone as a as a joke for the first three years of its right. existence. It had no keyboard. Yeah, it had no what keyboard. What were you going to do with no yeah. keyboard? And it was 2G. Right. Right. Like, Could, couldn't cut and paste. Yeah. You really couldn't do much God, I forgot it. about cut and paste. Right. And I think people, like, it takes a while for imagination to yeah. kick in. Yeah. I, do, I, I do agree. Do you think the watch gets there? Do you think they eventually figure it out? And do you think Apple Watch becomes, if not as ubiquitous as, I, as the iPhone, sort of as ubiquitous? I mean, somewhere close at least? So on the weekend, I actually leave my iPhone at home and I just go out with the Apple Watch, and the AirPods. Okay. And, you know, unfortunately, um, I have to leave my nice watch at home, but it's okay. But when I go out for the weekend, that's my thing. I do that mostly to kind of get away from the screen, and it helps. Like, all I need to do is, you know, sometimes call a taxi or, you know, the Uber app works on it, and the phone is still there. So I think it's made the watch is more useful today than it was when it launched. Right. Sig- significantly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, to, to me, as I said in a review of it, when it when Series 3 came out, the cellular capabilities is a game changer. Uh, and having met with people on, on the Apple Watch team within the past few months, you know, whenever they talk about the future of Apple Watch, they, they tend to crack a smile uh, and it really feels like they know exactly what they're doing. So I, I don't think it ever becomes iPhone, but I think it's going to be pretty damn close once we realize how powerful it could be for health. And once doctors start prescribing people to wear them, which yeah. they will, uh, they we all know that they, they cut a deal with Aetna not long ago to offer subsidized, almost free Apple Watches. Right. I mean, just think about it. I mean, Aetna has 20 million subscribers. So just to be clear, it was the fifth year when the iPhone actually took off. Right? Just remember, like from 2010 to 2012, even Instagram had about 10 million followers, people on, on the platform. Right. And like, you know, photography wasn't a thing. I think photography became the killer application. Uh, selfie, in my mind, is what has helped drive the um, smartphone adoption more than anything else. Yeah. I know I'm joking, but it's actually true. Like, there is not more, one function outside of messaging and and email that people do the most is, like, take pictures. Of course. Right. right. And, and I think uh, iWatch is waiting for some of that magic, like what that is, you know, we will see soon. Yeah, yeah I think we, we saw a little dose of how personal it can be with, you know, you could you could send your heartbeat to people, which, which was kind of like romantic and grandiose, but also kind of lovely that, that they thought of some, of doing something like yeah. that. And I think that, that to me, feels like them giving a, like a, a subtle tip of the hat or a subtle nod to what, what lay ahead. Uh, in, in speaking with those guys, like they view this as the most personal device they've ever created, and it is obviously. Um, but I think in the next few years, we're going to see something something significant there. There's something so charming about the heartbeat thing. It's just yeah, like it absolutely. kind of puts a smile yeah. on your face. It's I can't remember having ever used it except right when I got it, totally. just to see if it worked. 
Um, it does, for the record. It does, for the record. <laughs> it does work. Uh, but there's something really charming about it that I think makes the product feel a little better and a little like nicer than, than it might otherwise. Mm-hmm. They do need to work on the interface of the apps and all those kind yeah. of things. I mean, Can they've already work. redone it from scratch once, and yeah. I wonder how, how soon it will be again, that they redo it again. I think they're still stuck on this idea of watch and time in the past, not you know time and our you know uh, relationship with time yeah present and in the future i think that's where the, if any interface needs to happen it needs to need to be thinking about those things but in the interim i have to say the the old school wristwatch interface for me in an analog watch nothing better than that and now we'll look at this week's sponsor Over the last few years, Tudor's Black Bay line has been the gold standard for watches that combine a respect for watchmaking history with modern craftsmanship. The Black Bay Chrono adds an additional complication to the Black Bay family, but all built on the foundation of the iconic snowflake-style hands and the sturdy Black Bay profile. Inside beats the manufacturer caliber MT5813, a column wheel chronograph movement which is chronometer certified and fitted with a silicon hairspring. The Tudor Black Bay Chrono is bold and modern, but with just the right dose of nostalgia. Visit your local authorized retailer to see these watches in the metal or TudorWatch.com to learn more. Let's get back to the show. And so I have a question for the two of you. Okay. And I, you know, I'm going to turn the tables. So why do people not like quartz watches? Well, this is what we get for bringing a journalist on the show, uh, is, is he turns it around on us immediately. Former journalist. For, uh, for, once a journalist, now, always a journalist. Now what, venture capitalist? Yeah. Your money man. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. yeah. I'm, pro- I'm the problem, not the solution. <laughs> yeah. Uh, why do people not like quartz watches? I don't know, Ben, you want to you wanna take a stab at this first? Sure, I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab. I mean, first of all, there are several people that do like quartz watches, our own Jack Forrester being one of them. I've, I've toyed with the idea of buying a Grand Seiko 9F, which is their high-end uh, grand, uh, excuse me, high-end uh, quartz movement. I, I think so much of, of mecha- so much of mechanical watchmaking and high-end watchmaking is about the movement and about the feeling that you get winding it or, or it winding on your wrist, you know, this kind of, there's this beautiful symbiotic relationship where it relies on you as much as you rely on it. Uh, a course movement does not rely on you. It relies on a battery that you can buy at Walmart for $8 or less. Uh, I think, you know, so much of this is about charm and, and kind of the, the, the fun factor and the, the nostalgia of what watches are about and with courts you you certainly lose that uh, i think and i think that's that's a big reason why a lot of guys don't get into courts but as somebody who's been around watches a lot like in fact way too much uh you know there's appeal to a really high-end courts courts movement and i think often when when people like just in in the same way that i also really like grupal fours even though they're at times hideous uh and i really like roman gautier and a lot of these are really high-end watch brands i think of uh ralph lauren who, you know, when when I went to his garage in, in, in upstate New York, I saw these cars that were just like, like when I think of Ralph Lauren, I think of vintage Jaguars in, in British racing green and beautiful Mercedes convertibles and gull wings and these just like epically beautiful, traditionally beautiful things. And you get there and there are carbon fiber Lamborghinis and, you know, blue McLarens. It's wild stuff. And I asked him about that when I met him. And he's just like, you have to 
but once once you are so engulfed in, in any world, you have to begin to appreciate different things for different reasons. And he's like, look, is a, is a McLaren or a carbon fiber Lamborghini more beautiful than a Gullwing or you know a vintage Bugatti? Certainly not. But it, it gives him a different joy. Uh, and it's about performance and engineering. And anything that, that's done to the highest level is, is interesting. So in that same vein, uh, Seiko 9F to me is fascinating. There are other high-end quartz movements that I think are fascinating. Uh, Longines makes a, a really high frequency. Longines makes a really nice uh, high-frequency quartz movement. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, I think at, at times uh, when you think of quartz movements, you're thinking of inexpensive things which are, you know, slapped together in China for, for pennies. Uh, and that, that just doesn't have the charm that, that, that mechanical watches do. Yeah, I think it's also snobbery, right? I mean, Ohm, you you touched on this earlier, is people love to know more than other people. Mm -hmm. Uh, And being able to kind of like, you know, dismiss quartz watches offhand is is something that like watch guys, which I'm putting in like the biggest scare quotes I possibly can, uh, watch guys love to know more than other watch guys. And so, you know, just deciding quartz movements are are like a non-starter is an easy way to make it look like you somehow are discerning or have taste or know something that somebody else doesn't know. Uh, when in fact, being able to appreciate something like a 9F or a Longine VHP or something is is probably a higher level of connoisseurship. But I, I think that that is one of the biggest problems we in our little world in the watch world have is that there, there's this like faux intellectualism or faux kind of like discerning taste level that, that people tend to kind of like put out there when, when you don't really need to. I mean, we, I've often written about kind of the bell curve of appreciation of Rolex. You know, when you get in, when you don't know anything, you know Rolex and you like it because you've heard of it. And then as you start to learn a little bit more, you say, oh, I would never buy a Rolex. I can buy a whatever, a, a Jaeger, which is a watchmaker's brand, or an Omega because it's less expensive and, you know, Meta certified. And then you start to come back to Rolex. And I think there's so many people in our world, in the watch world, that, that ha- like hear something once and then repeat it as gospel and say, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a connoisseur, I'm an intellectual because I don't like Rolex or I don't like Patek yeah. Philippe or they hear about inner anglage which is like the ultimate like kind of like douchebag thing to say about Patek <laughs> Philippe or something like they don't they don't do inner angles on when they finish their movements on some of their pieces and it's just like okay like you heard that once you read that once on the right. purist or from Jack or something like that you don't even know what it means and and that right. that is a big big problem in, in the watch world and certainly yeah. others there's also this sense that like those inner angles, like, sure, you can appreciate them in an intellectual sense and, like, knowing that they're there on a really beautiful hand-finished movement is is great. But, like, how much does that actually bring you joy when you're wearing the watch right. on a daily basis? And the answer is, I would say, almost almost never. Like, maybe occasionally you think about it. But, I mean, Om, we've talked about this before, is, is you know, the dial is so important. Uh, and it's something that, like, watch guys often are like, oh, you just, you just like the look. And that's kind of dismissed. Uh, but ultimately, isn't that what matters? That like when you look at it, that it puts a smile on your face? Exactly. I think people forget how important it is to have an interface which just speaks to you. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually wanted like a little joke comment. But, you know, when you are like a watch nerd and you're wearing a really cool watch, the most of the time you're going to get a compliment is from another dude. Correct. You are wearing a beautiful watch. Some girl is going to tell you, that's a great watch. Yeah. I'll take the compliment from the girl. <laughs> All <day. laughs> Any time, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, I, I, do get, I do get it that people want to be more knowledgeable and all those kind of things. I think you go on men's fashion forums and you see the same thing. It's like you, you don't really know what you're talking about. You just have to know what you wear and your body will tell you whether that is great or not. Yeah. Your your own eyes will tell you whether this watch is 
you know, working for you or not, how you feel about it. I think a lot of it is learning to listen to yourself and not to the marketing and the brands and what everybody else says is it's pretty hard for most people, but that's where you need to end up, you know, and that's where you need to become, uh, when you become a collector, that's how you should be thinking about not what you're going to sell in the future, but what you're going to wear every day. Mm -hmm. I think that's how I think about, you know, collecting watches. It's like, can I wear this every day for the rest of my life? And if the watch qualifies, yeah, I know you're pointing at your beautiful Patek and you know, I probably can't do it. Like, I would not be able to wear it for the rest of my life. I, I was kidding. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, <laughs> I, I think of the same thing. And, like, the watches that, that I plan to keep for the rest of my life are typically new. Uh, they're usually below, you know, five to $6,000. And those are the watches that, like, I engrave on the back and will keep for the rest of my life, maybe give to a child if, if I were to have some someday. Uh, but, you know, things like this is just, like, it's it's kind of like it's, it's fun. And it's, it's a pursuit, and it's, yeah. it's something that, like, I enjoy at this point in my life where my life revolves around watches. Uh, will it always revolve around rock watches? Probably not. And so it's, it's like, it's, it's me. Exp- like, whenever I do anything, I, I go pretty hard for some period really? of time. <laughs> yeah. I, I didn't know that about you. Indeed. Indeed, I do. Uh, and so this is me just, like, exploring watches to the end. Yeah. And then when I hit the end, I'll stop. I agree with on, on that point. Like, you know, for me, the most expensive watch I've ever owned is, thanks to you, is a Moser, mm-hmm. right? Okay. And, and I'm, for my 50th birthday, I wanted to buy a watch, which I wanted to be, if, like, you know, Indians don't, like, Hindus don't get buried, but it was the proverbial watch I want to wear to my grave. Yeah. And that's how I wanted to, like, I love this watch and... Basically, I started planning to buy this two and a half years ago by using a really basic, you know, simple formula. I'm going to save $20 a day All for right. this watch. That's it. Okay. And like, and I, and that was like my goal was to get to a point where I can buy this watch. Not just because I could, I can afford it. Like, it's, you know, that's not a problem for me. But I just wanted like this adventure in like saving and and getting there and like yeah. and it was kind of fun there's like, a nice feeling yeah to that, there's a right? nice feeling to it it's like and and you know do i wear it every day probably not i probably wore it once to a friend's wedding that's it um but and i'll probably wear it to another wedding and it's not it's not an everyday watch but it reminds me of my 50 years on the planet and i think it's it's got an emotional appeal that's the first time i had a watch which just said wow, that is you. Like, that is you in a watch. And I think I've always thought about that. And I think that is so important when it comes to anything, just watches, pens, you know, people. Like, people who make you happy every day are the people you collect, that's not right. people who yeah. are going to cause you misery. And and that's how you should be thinking about all the objects, too. Can they make you happy? Do they bring joy to your face every time you see them? And if you don't, time to get rid of them. Like, mm-hmm. that's not a collection. That just is money sitting in a safe. The the line between collecting and hoarding is uh, very, very thin. Yeah. I mean, another thing that I know all, all of us sitting here are, are really interested in that kind of touches the watch world a little bit is is photography. Uh, and I know, Om, you, you mentioned it earlier uh, when we were talking about, about the iPhone, 
that the kind of ubiquity of photography with smartphones has, has kind of changed the role of cameras and of kind of more studied photography. Um, and you are working on a book about this, right? I am. I'm working on a book. Um, it's called uh, The Third Eye. It's a book about, you know, how the camera culture has changed society and and the long-term impact of that more, not just from photography standpoint, but more from what happens when there is a visual sensor everywhere. And I think that, to me, is a very fascinating study. So hopefully I can get this thing done soon enough. <laughs> and Ben is is currently taking Ohm's photo yeah. uh, with a Leica M10 and a, a Canon Dream Lens yeah. uh, in our nice low-lit low-lit studio here. Looking oh, that's very the, sultry right yeah. now. Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, the, nice. the dulcet tones and sultry <laughs> photos of, yeah. of Ohm Malik. Yeah, no, I, I've been also working on a little uh, book of photos. Right. Just, uh, I, you know, I fell into love, I fell in uh, to this uh, concept of trying to stop time and, you know, like slowing down time, you know, again, since this is a watch conversation, <laughs> I think uh, your readers will appreciate it. Like the, the time moves so fast and it actually, the reason we feel the time moves so fast is because all the notifications, all the inputs, all the sensory overload we experience makes our bodies think that our time is moving much faster and the year is going, you know, much faster. And and I decided that, you know, I needed to capture some of this time back and, like, how do I do this? And I started doing more long-exposure photography, so which involves standing in, like, remote places and trying to find the peace and the quiet and what makes what makes the planet worth living is not just the cities but the world outside of the cities and that attempt turned into like a now a three-year obsession so i'm going to put together a little book on long exposures cool essentially about stopping time and like what it means and like and why for, for people who are listening who don't know your work, also, when you say long exposures, you're not talking about 10, 15, 20 seconds. Uh, we, we were talking the other day, and you mentioned you took a photo that was a 40-minute exposure. Yeah. That's that's bonkers. You're, yeah. You have to be kind of crazy to do that, right? Yeah, I've put my Leica SL through some serious abuse. I think I'm maybe <laughs> the only one who does that, um, um, uh, who uses Leica SL to do long exposures, but... Yeah, but it's fun. For me, that is therapy. That is my way of, like, just kind kind of saying that, you know, the world is not that hectic. And it yeah. just is a beautiful place. And here it is in its, in its beauty. And that's 40 minutes in a photo. That's yeah. what it really is. Right. To other people, it may look like a photo. To, for me, it was 40 minutes of my life, which I just stood there and enjoyed the, the, the vast, beautiful, cold landscape of you know you know the near the arctic circle so for me that was fun that's great and what's your what's your process like for shooting this i mean like i'm sure we have a lot of people listening who want to know what gear you're shooting with you mentioned you're like sl but like what do you do when you decide you want to go shoot these kinds of photos like what what is that like for you i think a lot of it is more based on instinct how i feel about a place a moment like like I don't really plan. I just have my camera, I have a tripod and a bunch of filters. I use uh, a tripod from a company called Really Right Stuff. I yeah. think they're like the Rolls Royce of tripods in my mind, or rather Mercedes, 
because they're tough. Okay. And they don't break down. Right. And uh, I use filters uh, made by a company called Mind Camera Gear, which is a local California company. Really right stuff is a California company. You see the theme there. All right. Um, and I use a Leica SL with a 50mm lens, which is the M lens, and that's it. Like, that's my kit, and I use that day in, day out, never use anything else. Occasionally, I will use a 90mm lens, but that's very rare. Um, I don't like wide-angle lenses. I do 50mm, and I can do you know panoramas with 50mm. I'll do three photos and then stitch them together. And then okay. then I have a point-and-shoot uh, film camera, Konica Big, uh, Big Mini, Konica XR, which is just, I use that as my black and white camera. Okay. I used to own a lot of cameras. I basically sold most of them. And like, I'm just down to like three. Like, I have a backup uh, Fuji X100 just in case my Leica packs up. Okay. But that's it. That's like my kit now. It's like, you know, I think once you find the thing you like, just like my Grand Chico, once I found it, and I just like, yeah, this is it. You know, it's like finding your perfect mate. You know, once you once you do, you don't want to go out and date other people. You just want to be with them. And that's the way it is with equipment. And the relationship with the inanimate objects has to be as strong as the ones you have with real people. Yeah. So that's my process. And, you know, I go to places and... I'll go wandering, and then something will just, oh, I love this place. I'm going to stand here. And then suddenly the photos form in my head, and from photo it turns into a piece of art in my head, and then I'll take take one. Mostly it's like cold places. Okay. Why is that? I don't know. Maybe I grew up in India, which is so hot. Yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> revolting? Yeah. yeah. You had enough? Yeah. Looking for something new. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. But it's 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 fun for me to be, you know. I think the like, we all have our way of dealing with, you know, time, anxiety, and all the stuff with the modern life. And mine is just being in a place and just standing there and taking it all in and forgetting <clears throat> that there is other stuff, you know, which I need to worry about. And just and I think photography lets me do that like a lot, you know. And it also helps that. You know, you don't have to uh, see your watch at that time. <laughs> right, yeah. It's the only time I don't wear my Seiko is when I'm out taking photographs. Because I don't really want any reminder that there is a certain timeline I'm on. Okay. But, you know, it's fun. Like, But, you know, I think for me, uh, the thing which gives me a lot of joy is, is, is finding, uh, you know, folks like Ben when they were, like, literally one man in a blog and yeah. seeing it turn into like this big giant company which like well let's be clear <laughs> well I think it's not about the, the money it's about the big giant and influence right like yeah. I think so many famous people read the site because they all feel a certain kinship that's what I mean big big you know side yeah. and the influence should always be bigger than the size I think in my mind I think it's it's great to to be able to do what you love and like you know make a living off it i did that for most of my life yeah. you know i was blessed like i wanted to be a journalist and i was a journalist for the longest time and i got to start a company and you know 
ruin it too. But that's a different story. <laughs> that's from the other podcast. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah, but like, but the idea that you get to do what you love for rest of most of your life is pretty amazing. Most people aren't that fortunate, and I think that's why when I find folks like you, and I just feel so happy to see you succeed. I mean, you know why? What Hodinki is special to me? It's not just because of you, because it has been able to attract people who would have no other place to go. Literally, <laughs> they would be L- lost at souls. Mostly, the mostly me, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like they would be lost souls if they was not for Hodinki. And I think that's what I mean is I would have nowhere to go if you didn't exist. And, you know, people who come on your, on your shows and people who read the site, they also feel the same way. Yeah. Where will we go? That's the, the, the importance of being the hub of people's you know, attention is so much more important, especially when you love it like that much, like you do. Yeah. Plus, you're a very expensive friend too. Huh? <laughs> Sorry, Ben not, is a very expensive not, friend. Not now. only did true invest in Hodinki, <laughs> I have spent more money thanks to you than yeah. anybody else. That, that's kind of my lot in life is making people spend yeah. money. Yeah. yeah. Do you have like a kickback thing going? I wish. Not? Jesus oh, Christ! Like, you I need to get amazing. like this proverbial, proverbial, like you know, affiliate. Link Re- real going, life, yeah, like Google yeah, affiliate yeah, program. Yeah, right. it's like I don't know how many times you've taken me to Wempy. <laughs> I, think, they I even think just twice to be clear, right, but yeah, you just bought three a watch times, both. three times. I mean, you bought a watch at least two times, twice times. Yeah, yeah. Three times, yeah. yeah. have they bought you a bottle of wine? For, no, 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 they haven't. Yeah, yeah, yeah you know, uh, so Germanic of them. It really is. You know, it's it's one of those things where like the, the foundation of the site was was personal, obviously. But but as soon as I met Stephen and Will, who's still with us as well, uh, it really became much more than that. And and you know, even though it was never by design, it was never purposeful. I, I think you're exactly right. Like giving giving people like us a place to kind of congregate, uh, just intellectually, um, if not physically, I, I think is is kind of it, it's Hodinkee's greatest success and something that I'm most proud of. Uh, and you know we we've got employees that that I think like that are, are amazingly talented and like they just feel like they've found a home, uh, and I yeah. think that that's a really it's a really rewarding experience for for me. I think you know you you said to congregate intellectually and kind of digitally, but congregating in person is is also something that blows my mind every time we do it. Like when, whenever I mean been involved with the company almost six years now, yeah. but every time we do a meetup or an event. And we get, you know, 150 people who show up on a weeknight after work to, like, have beers with us mm-hmm. and see how excited they are. It's such a good reminder of why we do what we do. It is. I mean, Om, you know this from from being a journalist also, is it's really easy to forget when you're sitting behind your keyboard writing the next story. It's it's easy to forget what life that lives after you hit publish. Right. Uh, and to remember that these things go out there and there are people, the same people who are probably listening right now. Uh, who read these things and who care about what's being said and care about the photos you're publishing and who are interacting with other readers through the comments and then who come out to, you know, have a have a drink with us and, and chat in person. Uh, it's it's a really nice reminder of why you do this anyway, you know, put smiles on faces, give give people something to be passionate about. Yeah, I think we are all coming to this planet alone. We look for our tribes, we find them and then we leave. And I think that is, and if you can enable more people to come together, you're winning. And that's how I think. I think for me, that was the big takeaway from GigaOM was that we brought together a lot of people who were of the same same, same thought process. Mm-hmm. Though I know our time is coming to a close, but I have a, definitely a request for the editor and the proprietor of, 
of Hodinki. Okay. I want to do a couple of interviews with people who design the dials of watches. Okay. Are you going to make it happen? Absolutely. If I you want to if you want to write for us, I am not going to tell you no. Absolutely not. I just not. think people who design the interfaces, the dials mm-hmm. are like some of the most innovative and underrepresented designers in the world and I think world needs to know more about them. I I would like to do that. That's great. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. And you don't even have to pay me. Oh, perfect. Free free even work. Yeah. Free I work. Love yeah. That. <laughs> free work. I love. Yeah. Just, what do you what do you think makes a good dial? Like what what interests you? about that you know who one guy who was like the most amazing watchmaker who actually was the gateway drug for me was uh speak marin yeah yeah remember i emailed you i I love this guy's watches they are so beautiful i would never wear them because they're so big and like i my i don't have such big hands it is they were so beautifully designed and like perfect like and you know just and the other gentleman um uh who's who's from england roger smith roger smith yeah. his dials are just like oh, so elegant of, of course moser does like amazing dials for me yeah. like for me that is just the as good as you can get because you're also a no no logos guy yeah yeah you're a no anything guy right yeah, so pretty much pretty much hours and minutes and that's right. it yeah. Like, hey, nothing wrong with that. Not at all. No, not at all. You know, the other guy who just did an amazing dial was uh, Yves Bihar did the watch for Movado. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. the yeah. Um, You know, there's oh, many variations called? of the watch. There is one which is just black on black, and it's like, yeah. oh, wow. Yeah. Like, you have to really look. It's like, what, what time is it? It's like, who cares? <laughs> it <laughs> just looks so amazing. Yeah. It's always interesting when somebody from outside the watch world comes in to design something in watches because it's it's such a kind of like inside baseball, inside every little world. Uh, and then when they step in, you, you tend to get interesting results. Yeah. I mean, what about you? I know you are like a minimal watch guy. So whose yeah. dials do you like? Uh, I mean, Moser is, is a big one. Uh, Grand Seiko's dials are incredible. Uh, and then anything that Kari Vutilainen is is making. So yeah. he owns Komblamin, the dial manufacturer. And basically anybody whose dials he's making, Gronfeld, MB&F, the, the quality is just off the charts good. What about you? For, for me, dials come down to uh, kind of the warmth. Uh, mm. And so I've had, I've had constant debates with a good friend of mine named Eric Wind, who's a, now a vintage watch dealer. Uh, he cares about the case a lot. You know, he it has to be unpolished. Doesn't really care what what kind of shape the dials in. And I'm the exact opposite. Uh, the dial to me is the personality. It's the persona of of a watch. Uh, things that that show age and warmth are are, are the most special to me. Uh, you know, things with multiple tones. You know, two tone dials is kind of a thing. So many now. tones. So many tones. So many tones. Yeah. Shout to- out to Frank Rota right there <laughs> yeah. with um, multiple tones. Um, so you know, things that that are are kind of multifaceted and and a little bit more than uh, than just a standard any one color. Uh, I will say, you know, I think the most beautiful watch ever, and I know Stephen agrees with me and, and others do as well, is I've got this white gold Paddock 2526, which has an enamel dial, but it's not like snow white. It's really more of like a cream. Uh, and it is just lovely. I mean, it's just, it's perfect. It kills me every time you wear it. It is <laughs> it kills me too. so incredible. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the, the, there's that watch. I mean, I, I there's, you know, there are like three or four watches. You know, I've got, got a few watches. There are three or four that, that just like will stick with me forever. That's one of them. Uh, I've got this split second Eberhard that has, it's really a three-tone dial. 
Uh, that is just crazy. You know, it doesn't have the same kind of emotional appeal that the 2526 does, but it's still very special. Uh, so I, I'm a big fan of kind of like, this sounds crazy, but kind of like multicolored, multitonal dials, uh, and usually with, with that show their age. Mm. You know, the one watch you guys did a collaboration with Tag. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not a Tag guy, but that watch... Its dial was it's beautiful, like sublime. Right? It, it yeah. really was. It I really regret was. not buying that one. And uh, the other guy who actually does really great uh, dials is actually Bradley Price. Oh, of course. Yeah. yeah. Which yeah. is like, uh, auto, auto drama. Like amazingly beautiful. Like, and yeah, you know, it's like there is something to them. I, I agree. I mean, Bradley's a good friend, for the record, um, but I mean this sincerely. You know, he was the one that kind of taught me that inexpensive or less expensive watches don't have to be tacky. You know, d d good design costs as much as, as bad design, uh, no matter the price. Uh, and I think, you know, Autodromo watches really, really have, have proven that to a lot of people. That Like, his watches are genuinely interesting, genuinely thoughtful and good-looking, and they're below $1,000 in most cases. Yeah. I mean, I own one uh, that I paid for and I wear it all the time and I love it. It's it's just a fun, enjoyable watch. But you paid for it? I paid for it. You know, <laughs> you occasionally pay I pay for things. <laughs> I had one, um, I bought one from him. I interviewed him for Pico mm -hmm. okay. and uh, I gave him, I, I, I bought that watch and I was wearing it and somebody who was very close to me said, I love that watch and like, and I gave it to them and said, and they wear it every day more than me. So it's like gives me a lot of joy just seeing it on their hand than mine. Because in my case, it would have been like just, just like once or twice, maybe in a year. Mm -hmm. And in this case, they wear it every single day. And it just is watches need to be they need air like human beings. They need to be out there. And I think a lot of people collect watches just to keep them inside a safe, not and they don't take them out. I want I want people to wear the watches they have. You kind of feel that way about things in general, right? Like, you know, you're not you're not a you're somebody who likes nice things, but you're not somebody who wants nice things for them to sit on a shelf. No. I have a spreadsheet on how much usage I get for everything I you buy. You keep a spreadsheet? No, I only buy if I can you know, I can justify if I will use it every day. That's amazing. Right. So like if I will buy a pair of pants or if I rather buy if I get the pair of pants made. I want to make sure that I wear it a hundred times, and then calculated okay. price over a hundred times, not one time outlay. Like if it's not getting usage, it's a terrible investment. If I use it a hundred times, it's actually a great, great purchase. So I would rather have like you know I have pared down my wardrobe down to a hundred items. Okay. Except for shoes. Okay. Shoes don't count. Okay. Uh, naturally. Yeah, and. Uh, and like and watches don't count. So the number one is by reducing the number of things I own. The number two is not buying brand names. Number three is only focused on buying clothes which fit me and are made for me. Okay. Period. That limits my buying so much and it makes me happy that I wear everything I have. Like this sweatshirt you're seeing me wear, this is probably the hundredth time I'm wearing this. It's been like it's four years old. I mean, Ben, do you have do you have a system, or is it just kind of like, ooh, I like that? Uh, it's it's that, but I'm not a, I'm not a consumer of most things. I mean, I'm a hyper consumer of, of watches, obviously, but I, I'm not a shopper. Uh, I I don't uh, I don't really feel the need to, to purchase things all that often. Uh, you know, I'm I'm a you know kind of like meat and potatoes type of guy in in some ways, and it's really like I I buy the basics. I buy generally high quality basics, uh, and I keep them kind of forever. Um, but I don't have a system in, in place, for sure. 
Yeah, so. I hate that feeling of having to replace basics. Like, even just stuff like, you know, white shirts. It's yeah. like, when you have to replace them, it feels like, wait a minute, why Why do I have to buy this? Like, I, I have this thing already. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think most people just end up acquiring things for no reason. Mm. I was one of those people. The big thing I did was just like, it started with shirts, then it went with trousers, and then with jackets, and and then with shoes, and then everything else is just like, yep. And this is even casual clothes, not just, not like suits. I don't wear suits. Right. I just wear, you know, just like trousers and like I have one jacket, which, okay. which I wear for like when I'm officiating a wedding or I'm being forced which to you do I forgot you officiate weddings. Yeah. Or when I have to go meet some really famous person and then they everybody wants you to wear a jacket. Like Stephen. Yeah. Like mostly me, yeah. Uh, like heads of state. Heads of state. Also okay. Stephen. Also, yeah. 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 But not otherwise, yeah, you can, you can make me wear a damn jacket well san francisco is a perfect place for you then no i think i like wearing sweaters i think sweaters are great you know it's like san francisco is the 99 percent of the reason i've been here for 15 years is 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 because i can wear a sweater every day yeah i mean you've got three guys <laughs> three guys in this room all wearing sweaters yeah. but yeah. Well, like you know also sweaters do well on chubby guys you know they help you hide your it's Post like show. yeah you know, I joke, my stomach shows up 10 minutes before I do, so <laughs> so sweater always helps. You know, it makes you look more, you know, put together. Yeah. Versus, like, a jacket, which, like, you look a little sloppy in it, so. All right. Hey, too much information, but, <laughs> but also, you know, the the watches peek out nicely under, underneath. They, the sure, do. they yeah. sure do. You know, you have to think about these things. Yeah. Well, we're going to have to wrap things up in just a minute, but uh, I really appreciate you joining us this morning, Om. It's it's great. I mean, I think people can probably tell we're, you know, the three of us are, are friends and have known each other a while. And it's it's good to sit down and talk about these things kind of with a little structure instead of just, you know, through random texts here and there. But, you know, what what have been, whether it's about, you know, watches or photography or design, what what's kind of the thing that's preoccupied you the the most recently like what's the thing that you've just been thinking about the most i think when i think about any product any person and any any aspect of life i always think about what's the happiness quotient here right yeah. like what's the value of hap they bring it's not about like how important the thing is how famous people are how expensive a thing is what's the happiness quotient of something I think we don't think about that often enough and once you start doing that it, it starts to change how your your brain functions you know in September I got off Facebook not because I hated Facebook which I actually am being very critical of Facebook all the time for last since 2007 so it's not something new I got off Facebook because I was starting to live my life based on what other people were doing not what was making me happy. And I think last six months I've been exercising that control and focusing on, like, everything should make me happy. And I think everybody should be thinking about whatever they own, the people they are with, where they live. It's, happiness should come first more than anything else. I know most people live with a lot of constraints in life. You know, I'm fortunate enough to define my my constraints and live with this one notion that, I'm going to be happy. You know, I'm going to make an effort to not be miserable, even if the world is miserable. 
So it's pretty damn good advice for a rainy Thursday morning. It's not rainy, man. This is like a normal day for us. All right. That sucks. I can't complain. It's not snowing, yeah, so yeah, uh, yeah. I'm not I'm not whining. Yeah, but I do miss New York, and uh, every time I come to New York, I want to see you guys, so, yeah. which I do. Yeah, New York misses and, you. Yeah, Very I miss much. New York a lot. I mean, if I could do this, I could live there. Yeah. Yeah. But you can't wear sweaters in summer. Mm. This is it's a little rough, yeah. yeah. I've tried. Yeah. Didn't go well. <laughs> Didn't work. Yeah. But thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much for joining us. And uh, it's glad, good that we could get Ben and you and, and all of us in the same room together. Thank you, Ben. Thank, thank you, Stephen. Awesome. Talk to you soon. Bye. Thank you to Om and to Ben for joining us. This week's episode was produced by Grayson Corhonan and was recorded at Disher Music and Sound in San Francisco. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.